Hello, my name's Anne Morrison and I'm here today on behalf of the Irish Cultural Centre in Hammersmith, London. Um, part of the role of the ICC is to enable Irish authors to launch and promote and to discuss their work. In autumn 2020, its first literary festival included Irish writers from all over Ireland, as well as Canada and America. Today's event is part of a shorter series concentrating on leading voices and writers from Northern Ireland. And today I'm very, very happy to be in conversation with the poet Michael Longley. Michael has been a central figure in the poetry of Northern Ireland since the 1960s and was described by Seamus Heaney as a keeper of the artistic estate, a custodian of griefs and wonders. He's the author of 11 critically acclaimed books of poetry from No Continuing City in 1969 to his most recent publication, The Candlelight Master. He's received many awards for his work, including the Whitbread, T.S. Eliot, Horthenden Prizes, the Wilfred Owen Award and the Penn Pinter Prize. And other major achievements include the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry, a CBE. And from 2007 to 2010, Michael was Ireland Professor of Poetry. In 2015, he was made a free man of the city of Belfast. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and a member of Estona. Michael and his wife, the literary critic Edna Longley, live and work in Belfast. And Michael, you and I have been friends for many years, even yeah. decades, I would say. Yes, goes back a long way. <laughs> a long way. I, I, remember I, was... you, I remember you introducing yourself to me oh. in the company of Robert, and then I forgot your name. And you said, just think of Van Morrison and, <laughs> and, and remove the V. It's very strange the things you remember, isn't it? <laughs> it yeah. is, it is. Well, we've gone on from there and uh, and you yeah. need, you were the witness at uh, mine Robert's wedding and oh, no. so forth. So yeah. we've known each other many years, but I was wondering, how are you doing in, in lockdown? Um, you know, are you finding it's helping or, or hindering your writing at the moment? Well, it really just augments my already hermit-like existence. Uh, and in, in the last year, in the last 12 months, I've written more poems than I would normally write in, in about three or four. So it has been, uh, mind you, Edna looks after me. I, I do about one third of the cooking, um, <clears throat> but uh, it it has been a, a, a rich a rich period. And I have more or less written, finished uh, a new book, by the way, it's 12 titles I've published. Okay, uh, all so, right. Well, that's quite important because the next one, the new book, will be the 13th. All right. I, I just refuse to be uh, as superstitious about that. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. And you were saying that um, in lockdown, you and Edna had been getting to know each other, which for <laughs> people who've been married for nearly 60 years is quite good going, I thought. Well, uh, I mean, she's bottomless, as we all know. Uh, I'm quite a shallow person, I think, compared <laughs> to her. But, uh, no, it's what well, we've done, a lot of talking. And uh, it's um, and philosophizing, and uh, really uh, registering the things that that matter most deeply uh, during the crisis. And uh, it's um, it, it, the worst. The worst aspect of it is not seeing our grandchildren and children. Um, but by by and large, uh, we've got by. And uh, you know, at a practical level. The local shops have been helpful and they do deliveries. And uh, the, the trouble is you can't check whether your oranges and lemons are as fresh as they might be if you went in and chose them yourself. It, uh, if these are our biggest problems, it's not too bad, though, is it? So No, um, no not too bad. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um, so, and you mean you've written on a wide, tremendously wide range of subjects, but you were saying that you see yourself first and foremost as a love poet. Um, and why do you, I'd love you to tell us about why do you think your love poetry is really, is the heart of your work? Well, it's really difficult to uh, explain that. I mean, I have said before uh, that if poetry is a wheel, uh, the hub of that wheel is love poetry and branching out from the love poetry are other affections and responsibilities, love of country, uh, love of nature, uh, love of love of whatever you like, and uh, I do think um, as well 
that there's something sexy about poetry. Uh, there certainly is for me. Um, I mean, I've said somewhere that uh, it's far more exciting writing a poem for me, anyway, it's far more exciting than anything else, like eating or drinking or even sex, you know. Uh, and therefore, um, for something that is so sexually alive, the core of it is bound to be love poetry. Mm, absolutely. Could the, the, the theme about about love and uh, love poetry and um, I was I was one we were talking about this um, lifelong relationship almost with with Edna. How important to your work has it been that Edna is this distinguished critic and academic? Well, uh, Edna by any kind's a great critic, you know. She's certainly one of the best critics of poetry <clears throat> in the world. And uh, when I've written a poem, which I did this morning, by the way. Um, excited to be seeing you, you see. Uh, when I've written a poem, I'm not really, uh, I don't relax until I've shown it to her. And then um, she gives it what I jokingly call, and what she doesn't like me to say, uh, uh, the good housekeeping seal of approval. <laughs> and uh, it's been extraordinary to be able to test anything I've written against this uh, very very subtle uh, critical mind. Uh, one of my running gags, though, with the students is that I'm probably the only poet uh, who's written love poems uh, to a critic. So, you see, I, I don't think a, a poem, well, I don't think any work of art is complete until it, is, it has been received critically, until it has its audience and that its audience has... Um, uh, thought and talked about it and felt felt about it. Uh, and did she always say it's marvellous or are you sometimes disappointed in her reaction? Well, I expect I expect unbridled encomium, of course. Uh, Actually. <laughs> but uh, really all I'm looking for is, is the thumbs up. Oh. Uh, I know uh, Mary was telling me uh, that uh, when Seamus showed her a poem, he would always nervously say, what's wrong with it? <laughs> What's wrong with it? And uh, uh, that's a, that's a very important and mysterious moment when uh, Edna says, "Should you not invert those two words? Uh, do you need that comma there?" Uh, just the little the little uh, tweaking little tweakings, um, which would have happened anyway. But um, she saves me uh, weeks of of um, anxious fiddling. I, I don't think any, any, any poem is, is a solo flight. Uh, I think if one was cast up on a desert island uh, on one's own, say at the age of 12, uh, one wouldn't necessarily start to write poetry. You, you, would, set, you would set out to be a, a builder of, of, of shelters, a catcher <laughs> of fish. Um, the uh, so what was I saying? <laughs> we were we were on the subject. Oh yeah, of, about poetry. Yes, yeah, yeah, love, yeah. And love, love poetry in particular. When you were saying um, about the you know sex and love and the importance of that to your work, there's a there's a tremendous po love poem which it'd be great if you could read for us, which oh. is uh, Swan's mating. Yeah. That was written, uh, it's set on, on the Can Dublin Canal. And uh, I remember one Sunday going, walking along the canal, sitting down, and they, these two swans came uh, and they proceeded to mate. And it's very, they, they do this with their heads and it's very, very balletic. It really demands the, the music of Tchaikovsky. And then eventually the cob, uh, puts his neck over the, the the pen, and then he treads her, and she's under submerged at the moment of ignition, if you like. Uh, and it's very, very, it's stunning. It's um, it's very beautiful. So I'll read this one. I wrote this one very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the second stanza 
came as I was walking down the stairs and I just wrote it out. The, the first stanza, which is simpler in a way, uh, uh, it was harder to write. And I love the two words in English for the male swan, which is uh, cob, and for the female, which is pen. <coughs> Swans meeting. Even now, I wish that you had been there, sitting beside me on the river bank. The cob and his pen sailing in rhythm until their small heads met and the final heraldic moment dissolved in ripples. <clears throat> this was a marriage and a baptism, a holding of breath, nearly a drowning. Wings spread wide for balance where he trod, her feathers full of water and her neck under the water like a bar of light. You like that one? Yeah, it's gorgeous, absolutely. And really... I've, I've been obsessed by swans ever since. Well, birds feature a lot, don't they, in your in your work there um, and and nature generally. Yeah, I, I don't mind being called a nature poet. Um, and uh, I, the, the next book, my, my next book, my 13th book, it's full of dozens of birds. In fact, it's called the book. Do you want the title of the book? Yes, please. Uh, the Slain Birds. And it's, it comes from a, a genius line by, by Dylan Thomas, for the sake of the souls of the slain birds flying. Mm. And uh, so it's called The Slain Birds. And it's, is a, there are all sorts of lovely little creatures in it. And I'm just going to have a glass of water. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's the distinguished critic. <laughs> it's also handy for passing you glasses of water. But she subs occasionally as my PA. <laughs> I'm sure she loves you saying that. And uh, <laughs> she subs as my stylist. Really? She's yes. multitasking I, today. I wouldn't be wearing this shirt and braces if it weren't for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, much credit to her, much credit to her. Um, but I think we let, let's pursue one of those spokes of the wheel then with, with love as the, as the hub um, and pursue the, the idea of nature in your poetry because um, the landscape and the flora and fauna of Corrigskiwan, um on the west coast of Ireland have been a, a tremendous thread through a lot of your poetry. What, what does, can you sort of say what that place means to you? Well, I remember it was in 19, 1970. And we went there for the first time. Uh, Edna and I, uh, we were collected by uh, uh, David. Well, first of all, the cottage is owned by a very great ornithologist, uh, David Cabot. And he's let us lodge there uh, every year um, while he's not there. And it was his wife who collected, it was an old school friend of Edna's, and she collected us. And she drove us uh, from Lewisburg. Uh, uh, to, uh, Kwan, and we just had, uh, one, one child there, uh, a, a baby, uh, Becky, and she stopped the car at the, at the turn in the road when you come down, and there's this wonderful sandy arena, uh, with, um, and out there, there's, um, uh, Clare Island, Inish Turk, Inish Boffin, um, and to the left, there's Wheelray Mountain. It's it's breathtaking, and in a way, that's how you respond to it for a while. But um, as you get to know it, um, you're aware of the riches in the middle distance, and then finally you come to appreciate um, everything that's that, that's at your feet. And uh, I've been back there every year uh, since 1970. You know. You know that saying, uh, uh, travel broadens the mind. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably uh, true. But I think going back uh, uh, to the same place again and again, a place of such, of such abundant beauty, uh, enriches the mind. Uh, and every, every, every year, and I think, well, I won't be writing any more, more Corksky one poems. But every year, there's a, there's a few. Uh, in other words, 
uh, the, the, the place is bottomless. And at this stage, and having been there for God knows how many years, uh, 50 years in a row, um, I, I feel that I'm still only scratching the surface. Yes, that's amazing. And and so many of the um, the animals, the the birds of that place enter into your poetry. And I'm always particularly struck by the otters. And um, I, I mean, how do you feel when you see an otter up close when you have one of those encounters? Well, it's I, I feel devout. Uh, I mean, I revere these creatures, and um, I think. I used to think of myself as their custodian. Uh, do you know what I mean? That David Cabot and I and Edna and our family, we, we all love these these creatures so much that we're uh, their custodians. But I now think of them as the custodians of, of our soul, of our souls. Um, I, For me, uh, when I see... A, a beautiful bird in flight. Or I see, I see um, say, a gannet uh, diving for a fish, uh, or the swans on on the lake taking off in flight, uh, or um, a rare a rare orchid. It, it's like a religious experience. It's certainly uh, the nearest I get to to what I might call uh, a, a religious experience. <clears throat> Because you're not conventionally religious, so in a way, this is where your your spiritual feeling is, really. No, I don't think you need to believe anything, though, to be religious. Uh, I think I, I wouldn't mind using the adjective religious to describe uh, my feelings when when I when I see these wonders, and uh, when when I meet an otter. I haven't seen an otter for a few years. Um, uh, they're there, of course, because we see their tracks on the on 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 the sand, and uh, in in a way, Corrigan um, and the west of Ireland. I'm also very fond of the Burren in County Clare. In in a way, they've become um, states of mind, mm. uh, and I, I think if I were confined to a wheelchair and couldn't go there anymore. I would still be writing currently one poems because mm. uh, that's that. I've used the word to describe the, the, the soul landscape. Mm. Uh, it's it's a soul uh, a soul landscape, and um, uh, I mean, the, the sort of thing that that moves me uh, is just the the light you get off the off the waves. Uh, when they're when there's spindrift there, when they've been stirred up uh, by the wind, or uh, the the call of the curlew, which is a very plaintive call. Um, when I have I have so many favourites, and uh, anyway, there you are. I mean, with with you, some people think of nature poetry as being a form of escapism. But I don't. It doesn't really form that function uh, with you. I don't think it's um, it's not so much a retreat from the problems of Northern Ireland as a sort of more bleak way of looking at them. In a way, do you do you feel that? Well, um, through the troubles, Corrigan uh, shone its its beautiful light uh, on on the troubles and uh, helped to light up uh, the corners. But I mean, they, our problems are much bigger than Northern Ireland. They're now global, and if we don't get our act together, um, uh, we've had it. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, really, what the world needs is to read more nature poetry. Uh, and I mean, how we how we uh, care for the the animals and the plants uh, which share the the planet with us. That, that's the most political. Question: The most strike, the most pressing question uh, there is, and uh, anything uh, which helps to burnish the the appreciation of other people, of us all, to um, to the, the the animals and the and the plants, uh, is is of crucial of crucial importance. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Um, and, and these places that you've been going, well, Corrigskiwan, I mean, more recently, Loch Alsh, with, where Sarah, your daughter, lives um, there, they, they kind of form this kind of iconography, personal iconography. And I, I was, there are these recurring settings and allusions and references in your work. Are they self-consciously constructed or are they just the natural outcome of your long-term interests and connection with these themes and places? Well, I've never ever constructed anything. Uh, uh, poems come to me in, in the confusion and I have to, to work them out. And uh, I'm taken by surprise by poems. Uh, I can't plan, a, you can't plan a poem. Uh, you can't uh, uh, produce a poem as a, as, a, as a result of willpower. It really, it really has to come to come out. And uh, in one of the, the, the great honors of, of, of Edna's and my life, life together was introducing each of the three children uh, to Korogsky one. Uh, and it changed their lives. Uh, they're now all grown up, of course, and we now have seven grandchildren, uh, and they all love Korogskiwan. Uh, so, um, it's, and the, uh, grand, the grandchildren feature quite a lot, particularly in your in your recent work. And I would say that they're another sort of spoke of that of that hub, that wheel um, that connects well, back to love. Well, they are indeed. Um, uh, it's quite extraordinary to have them, uh, seven grandchildren, uh, and Papa, you see, I'm called Papa. And I, I said to Edna, that's like being promoted for doing nothing. <laughs> uh, and, uh, the, yeah, the new book, The Slain Birds, well, a, a dozen or more poems about, about my grandchildren. And, uh, see, it seems to me, that there aren't many grandchildren poems, are there? And it's because right. most, most poets don't to be old, don't live to be old farts like me. <laughs> yeah. Well, even more important to write about your grandchildren, but it is that it's that quality of them being able to see familiar things through new eyes. I think that you really bring out from in the poems you've written about them. Well, I hope so. Um, I mean, I listen to everything they say. Uh, for instance, the new book uh, will have as a little epigraph, uh, epigraph at the end, a little poem in italics on its own, something which just takes down what Connor, who's Connor Michael Longley, is named, named for me, uh, he just said in conversation a few years back, he said, the dark is where you can see what you're thinking. Ooh. Isn't that wonderful? That's deep, isn't it? It's is terribly good. And uh, uh, Lokash was important. You see, uh, I shared my soul landscape, Korogsky one, with, with Sarah all through those years. And that now that she's living with her partner and two daughters in Lokash in the Western Highlands, uh, she's introduced me to the salt marsh of Lokash and the surrounding hills. And... Um, uh, the are the, the two landscapes, the two soul landscapes are interacting, are refracting each other. And uh, it, there's something very, very profound happening in my relationship with those two places and more especially with, with, with Sarah. And, and staying with family, but a different aspect, I was going to ask you about your father. Um, who was in? Who also appears frequently in your in your poems and some of your best work as well. And um, he was in the trenches as a captain of a company in the First World War and received the military cross and also volunteered in World War Two. But in what way is his presence kind of lingered in your life and particularly when you reflect on more recent conflicts? Well, we ha I had a tumultuous uh, adolescence with him. Uh, which I regret really, uh, because he was he was ill towards the end of of his life, and when when I was in my teens, um, and uh, I think more and more of him really. Uh, I mean, I've lived God knows how many years longer than than he did. He he was sixty four when he died, and I was just 
I was just 20. And, uh, and I kick myself practically every day for not having asked him more questions about his experiences in the trenches, because like a lot of survivors, uh, he was reticent about, about that extraordinary nightmare, uh, which I think Europe is still recovering from, really. And, uh, um, but he was, in, in retrospect, I see him as an extraordinary gentle man. And, uh, he was, he was, he was rather charming. And, uh, unlike most English people in Ulster, uh, we Ulster people, or Ulster people seem to like him a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, he joined up. I remember it was at Notting, Gate, Notting Hill Gate, uh, in London. And he joined up. Uh, when he was about 17, can you imagine? And then by the time he was 20, he was a captain because there were the, uh, the officer class was so decimated. Um, he was called the, the snobs of the British army would have called him a trench officer. Okay. He was, he was there because he was needed in the trenches, not because he'd been to Sandhurst or okay. Eton. It's all fairly loathsome, that aspect yeah, of it. That's uh, mm. And, uh, I mean, the fact that he was, he was um, in charge of a company of young soldiers. Can you imagine? Uh, when, yeah. when, when he was half the age of my son. Mm. Uh, so he haunts me and uh, the war haunts me. So he died when you were only 20, your father, but yeah. you're, you've continued to write about him. And do you, has the way you think of him changed over the years? It sort of sounds like it has. Yes, has been much tender. Much I get more and more tender towards him. Um, I mean, I when I look in the mirror, I I, I see his face, and uh, I regret very much that he never met Edna, yeah. and he never met our children or or, or grandchildren. And uh, I can see that he knew. I, what I liked about him was he was gentle, and very very well mannered. Uh, in a in a very English way, uh, although I'm Irish, I, I always cheer for Ireland, and I love it especially when they beat England. Uh, <laughs> I'm still an Anglophile, and uh, I like to remember the sound of his voice, which was very—it was slightly posh. I don't know where he got it from. He should have had a Cockney accent, but he had quite a quite a posh accent, as as indeed did my mother, who also came from South London. And, um, I, 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 I love, yeah, he was, he, he always had a, a, a hanky in his breast pocket, you know, and a cravat for, for gardening, even when he was just, even when he was even just, for gardening. even when he was weeding. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. And what was his attitude towards your poetry? Was he, was he encouraging of that? No, I'm afraid he was discouraging. Uh, my my very first poem uh, was called Marigolds and it appeared in the Icarus, which was the Trinity College um, undergraduate literary magazine. And it was called Marigolds. And it went, she gave him marigolds, the colour of autumn to keep in his cold room. And the late light of autumn gilded all their moments. Now, I know it's not paradise lost, but uh, I, I, I brought it home by mistake at Easter and my father discovered it. And he said, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Oh, no. And Yeah. But that in a way, you see, because of the mood I was in in my teens, that made me all the more determined to pursue poetry. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, you never doubted yourself or it didn't knock your confidence. Oh no, you don't. I doubt myself all the time. <laughs> and it's terribly easy to, for my confidence to be knocked. Uh, no, uh, I, I think praise is, um, well, we're, we're biological beings who respond to stimuli. Mm. And one of the stimuli for me, I'm afraid, is praise. <laughs> uh, I, I can't get enough of it. And when I get it, I inhale. Very, very deeply. <laughs> uh, 
Why yeah. not? Well, you've had a lot of it, so you should. <laughs> but um, but you should be quite satisfied. But it's yeah, probably yeah. Well, one of the. I'm I'm sorry in a way that my father didn't live long enough to see something of the the, the poetic, you know, the way <clears throat> things came to fruition. Mm. And uh, I remember when I was um, uh, when I received the Queen's Gold Medal, and uh, I got I got on rather well with her. I chatted away, um, and I said I showed her a photograph of my father. I brought a few photographs of them. They're up on the wall here, in fact, uh, of him receiving the the military cross and something else uh, from George V. And I said, uh, ma'am, you say ma'am, ma'am, may I show you a couple of photographs of my father with your grandfather? My father with your grandfather, that's right. And she looked at them. Uh, She was interested. And I said, may I ask where that was taken? And she said, oh, I know exactly the spot. And uh, I will get my equerry to see you there. And you could see from the balustrade where the photograph was taken. Mm. So they, I bowed out backwards. <laughs> and the, the equerry took me and I stood on the spot where my father had received his military cross. And I had burning in my pocket the Queen's gold medal for poetry. And I remember thinking to myself then, that Marigolds wasn't such a crappy poem after all. You know? <laughs> very good, absolutely. He would have been very proud, wouldn't he? But he he unfortunately died when you were too young to have had all that success. But uh, it's yeah. all happened since. Yeah. Yeah. Have you you've forgiven him that remark? I hope anyway. Along oh, I get forgave him when soon after he had made it. You know, and I knew it was just kind of impatient, mm-hmm. and he was in many ways. Uh, military, he really had been shaped by his experience. And I think my father felt that all I needed spiritually was what he would have called a, a short back and sides haircut <laughs> and to button my shirt and wear a tie, you know. Okay. And yeah. maybe the cravat and you know, the, the hanky yeah. in the pocket as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Gosh. Well, um, let's let's move on, if we may, to uh, the Troubles and all those cataclysmic events that happened over many decades in the north of Ireland. Um, and you've written many incredibly powerful poems about the Troubles, um, but also talked about the difficulties of writing um, about it. And, I mean, how difficult was it to find the appropriate tone and form of expression for all of those terrible things that we lived through? Well, it's terribly difficult because you're talking about a civil war and you're, you're talking about uh, uh, the suffering of your neighbours and fellow citizens. And uh, one's, one's got to, I mean, uh, John Hewitt, uh, not John Hewitt, uh, John Hume, uh, who referred to the, 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 the politics of the latest atrocity. <clears throat> and I adopted that at the time to the poetry of the latest atrocity. Uh, and uh, there, there was a, a mode of writing which uh, I and my friends all dismissed as Trouble's Trash. And it was cashing in on, on the lurid and uh, distressing details. And uh, it, uh, for, for quite a while after 69, I mean, it all blew up, didn't it, you know, in the summer of 69. I remember Derek Mahan and I walking up the Falls Road, which was in ruins in many places. Um, the, uh, really, we felt that um, we, we needed time. That, as I expressed it somewhere, we needed time for the raw experience uh, to settle to an imaginative depth where it could be transmuted into something that was... Um, uh, artistically and spiritually authentic. Um, and uh, eventually, though, uh, the poems emerged from from Derek and Seamus and Jimmy Simmons and me and from the younger poets. And uh, um, some of mine did have, have made a small contribution, I like to think. Uh, there was a poem called Wounds. Uh, in which what I do really, Anne, is I 
ask my father, ask the ghost of my father what he would make of the mess of the troubles. And uh, then when there was talk of a ceasefire, um, I find myself um, uh, writing a, a Homeric poem uh, uh, called Ceasefire. Um, Is that one you can read for us? You think I should? Yeah, please. Yeah. This is my Lake Isle of Inish Free, you know what I mean? Uh, this is the only poem of mine which most people have heard of, which any, anybody's heard of, you know? Um, and this was, um, when I was writing this poem, it, it describes the old king of Troy, Priam, plucking up courage to go to Achilles' tent to, to beg for the body of his son Hector whom uh, Achilles has killed in combat and has been dragging around Troy behind his chariot. And um, he that's really what the poem is about. And um, at the time, I, I needed to put a face on Priam. For me, this is the, the soul. And I think, begin with the, the Iliad's the greatest poem we have about war and death and um the the um this episode between priam and achilles when they meet uh for me is the soul of of the iliad and i gave priam the face of gordon wilson uh in my mind you know the old the, the draper who lay beside his daughter when they, the the enniskillen bomb and they were covered in rubble and he felt her dying beside him. And uh, he was on TV a few days later with his in plaster on his face and his arm in a sling. And he said he, he forgave her killers. It was an extraordinary moment, you know. And uh, this all went into this poem, which emerged, emerged was published in the Irish Times. This, uh, I sent it down to the Irish Times. And John Banville, the great novelist, was then literary and he tried to stop press and uh, it went in and that week the IRA declared their ceasefire night, August 94 Yeah. so maybe you'd read it for us now that ceasefire <clears throat> put in mind of his own father and moved to tears Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away but Priam curled up at his feet and wept with him until their sadness filled the building. Taking Hector's corpse into his own hands, Achilles made sure it was washed and, for the old king's sake, laid out in uniform, ready for Priam to carry, wrapped like a present, home to Troy at daybreak. When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. Achilles built like a god, Priam good-looking still and full of conversation, who earlier had sighed, I get down on my knees and do what must be done and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. Yeah. Wow, so yeah. powerful. Yeah, it's um, Homer enabled me uh, to write that, you know. I mean, the, 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 the powerful presence of Homer and then Ovid and so on are, are there through a lot of your poetry. Um, you studied classics at Trinity, as you're saying. I mean, these poems, well, in the case of Homer, three millennia old. Um, you know what? What do you feel is their kind of continuing relevance to the to the modern world? I know you're a great advocate of them. Well, they they provide a, a lens through which to to view to view everything. I mean, uh, Homer and uh, the, the great Greek tragedians are about everything that uh, that troubles and concerns us. Um, they're more relevant uh, than ever. Um, they they never 
they never go out of date. I mean, Homer's never gone out of date, has he, you know? Um, I mean, T.S. Eliot may go out of date, but Homer certainly won't. You know? Yeah. Um, and they provide uh, uh, models, really, for us to, to, to make sense of our confusions. I want to take you back to, um, you know, when you sort of the start of your writing career and and um, you, when you began, why was it, do you think, that you were drawn to poetry rather than prose? That's a very good question. <clears throat> I, I tell the students occasionally, you know, in, 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 the, in the Heaney Centre, you know, the, the creative writers, <clears throat> uh, I, I tell them with trying not to smile, I, I say, well, of course, prose is for sissies. Uh, uh, well, the thing about uh, uh, poetry, is that, well, Yeats's phrase, the fascination of what's difficult wow. and, uh, you know, pushing against, against the medium. Um, uh, I, I, I remember in uh, a class on Aristotle at, um, at Trinity, the great scholar and professor at W.B. Stanford was talking to us about Aristotle. And he asked us the following week to come back with our own definition of poetry. And I'm still proud of mine, although I was only, say, 20 or something. Um, I said, if prose is a river, poetry is a fountain. Uh-huh. You know, the, the form of the poem is like the nozzle through which water is forced. And it comes out, and it's two things. It's free-flowing, and it's got a pattern. Mm. Um. So um, it, that's the way I express myself. Um, you see, a poem comes out, it can come out, you know, but like a Rubik cube. It goes clickety, clickety, click, and you know it's finished. Right. Uh, whereas prose isn't like that. You can fiddle with it forever. Um and nevertheless, uh, I do feel that, say, uh, there's not that much poetry in a lot of poetry books, right? <laughs> uh, there's more poetry in, say, a novel by uh, John McGahan or John Banville or uh, Sebastian uh, Barry, you know, those. Mm. Uh, so there's an overlap between uh, good poetry and good prose mm. and what they have in common is rhythm vitality vitality of rhythm um you uh, said you set yourself some quite difficult challenges particularly in your early writing and in no continuing city it, it seems to me in those kinds of rhythms and meter and form um you know, it was a very ambitious, auspicious first book from that point of view. Yes, I'm so proud of it, Anne. You know, and I, I really, I really made things difficult for myself. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, when I, I, I read so much poetry now, it's just um, pocket prose. Do you know what I mean by that? It's um, it, if it's read, if it was read aloud, you wouldn't know where the lines ended. Um, the way you always do in Shakespeare, for instance, and it flows, and yet, uh, you know, you have a sense of the lines. In fact, Shakespeare is a perfect fountain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I enjoy writing the odd bit of prose. Uh, I, I, I signed a contract many moons ago to write a memoir. Okay. Uh, but I haven't gotten around to it for the simple reason that I don't want prose to cancel out even one poem. Okay. So, and you think it might? Yeah. You see, the difference between poetry, how many novels have you read twice? Mm, not yeah. many. Now, there are all of my favorite poems by other people, I mean. Uh, I've read hundreds of times. And, you know, a poet like Edward Thomas or W.B. Yeats, I've read their poems hundreds of times, and each time it's new. Mm. And that's the magic of poetry. And I forget who said it's memorable speech. And, I mean, it's odd to have words 
floating around in your... It's almost the only art form that I can think of that, that works that way. Uh, I, I tell my students, it's, it's as though you could walk into an art gallery and say, oh, look at that Vermeer. I'll take it home. <laughs> if only. Um, and uh, well, you can do that with poetry, can't you? Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, see, poetry <laughs> is, a, it's, is a religious experience, uh, reading it and writing it. And uh, I said somewhere that if I knew where poetry came from, I would go there. <laughs> but I don't know where it comes from. And it was 10 years in my 40s when I didn't write anything. I thought I was finished. And then the muse came back. And here I am at 81, uh, scribbling away and writing in the morning. I, I mean, I, I think it was an anticipation of meeting you. Anne. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're a charmer. I think, well, I think it's brilliant that you're having this kind of great flourishing, uh, you know, that your energy is undiminished. Hasn't been published yet. It may not be seen. I mean, you see, the old, the old, the old idiot making a complete asshole of himself. I've I've had a sneak preview, as you know, and I yeah. am confident that is not the case. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, you were mentioning earlier about your friendships, or these crucial friendships that you've had, and you know, you shared a flat in Dublin with Derek Mann, and then you came back to Belfast and uh, met Seamus Heaney, Jimmy Simmons. I mean, it was. It was a most extraordinary time in that kind of sixties, um, uh, with with such great writers all together. Do you think it was just luck that there were so many incredibly talented poets in the same place at the same time, or, well, or were you I, actually sparking off each other? I think it's both those things. I, I, on uh, American radio. <clears throat> I was asked why so many poets came from Northern Ireland. <clears throat> so I thought it'd be funny. And I, I said, well, it's to do with the water supply. It comes, comes from a place called the Silent Valley. Uh, but it didn't get a titter, you know, they take their poetry very seriously over there. Uh, but the, you see, when, when it was, especially with Derek and then with Seamus and then with Seamus and Derek and then Muldoon. Yeah. And, and, Kieran Carson, Maeve McGookian. Um, it's it is quite extraordinary. I mean, it's a really good water polo team, isn't it? <laughs> uh, and there was a mixture of support and, and competition. And uh, I like to think of you know when we were together, there was a kind of convection current which lifted us up. And for, I mean the, the the first book, the first poem in my first book. Epithalamian, uh, these are the small hours when moths by their fatal appetite that brings them tapping to get in are stared along the night to where our window catches light. Uh, uh, I wrote that because Mahan had sent me a poem with a, a tight little rhyming uh, stanza scheme like that. So I thought I would do one and make it even more difficult than his. So it was partly a, a test of my virility, <laughs> uh, but lo and behold, the, the poem took over. And I can remember writing it on down the Lisburn Road in 1963, Nick 64, perhaps 64, three or four. And the, the rhyme words just dancing down the page before I'd even written the poem. It was, it was wonderful. And like, like when, you know, the, the second stanza of um, Swan's Meeting poem, which I read, when that just bang came into my head. Uh, I mean, these are the things which you just can't, you can't legislate for. You can't, you can just hope that they happen occasionally. And um, uh, where were we? Sorry, Anne. No, on <clears throat> the, the friendships and... I was I was sort of interested in that combination of of yeah, support of friendship but also rivalry because you have a 
you have a, a great poem in uh, in bookshops in in uh, in Angel Hill about you putting your vol your slim volume in front of the others, uh, which I really like. Um, <laughs> so there was there was definitely an element of wanting to outdo each other as well, which was probably quite uh, a spur to to great writing. Yes, I can remember uh, Seamus Heaney inviting me to coffee in a little coffee shop downtown called the Piccolo. And the sole purpose of, of inviting me out was to buy me coffee and then tell me that he'd had a poem accepted by Encounter magazine. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, you were duly impressed, I'm sure, yes. Uh-huh. Very good. Well, allow me to send off a poem of mine, <laughs> which and I remember was called A Working Holiday. And it got accepted. Uh, so that was the type of uh, type of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's odd how old, not, nothing like that matters now. Quite. Um, uh, I, in fact, I don't send poems off. I, I wait for, to be asked, which means you, not very often. <laughs> I was going to say, you've reached that level now where they write to you, so... I mean, you know, we've sadly in the last few years, we've lost, um, you know, Karen Carson, Derek Mahan, Seamus Heaney before that. So these great friendships that you're talking about, um, you know, have have gone. What what kind of effect has that uh, had on you? Well, each one of those deaths was heartbreaking, really. Um, I, I. I miss I miss them I miss them very very much. Um, I always was very close to Mahan, and uh, we had a, a, over fifty years friendship. So in a, in a way, the friendship looked after itself. Uh, there was a period with, with Seamus when I didn't see so much of him uh, because I mean he was he he really worked himself too hard. He couldn't say no. He always said yes and obliged and performed. Um, but towards the end of his life, he and I were coming together uh, uh, more closely again. In fact, just a fortnight before he died in, in Lister and Varna, there was, we gave a, a joint reading together and um, we had too much to drink in, in the, the local uh, hotel. And uh, in a two weeks' time, he was dead. And, um, and yeah, he's he, he's still competing from the grave. Yeah, I think you know, giving me a nudge and saying, you know, do better than that. You know, uh, when was the last time you had a had had a poem in the New Statesman? Uh, 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 Derek Derek was more removed uh, from the the poetry business, as you might call it. And, uh, uh, and, you know, a jaundiced, more jaundiced view of, of success and so forth and, and protected himself. Man, he wrote a funny little poem, uh, that occasionally you think of, you know, he pretended not to be as interested as in fact he was. I built my house in the forest far from the venal roar. Somebody please be the path to my door. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Derek was one of the funniest people I've ever met. I mean, with um, we were talking about Derek Mahan and Seamus Heaney and Kieran Carson having died and so on. There's in, in in your recent work, I would say there's a definite sense of a ticking clock. Um, and I was wondering if you had this sense of time running out and an urgency about the writing that you're doing because you're saying you're writing a lot at the moment no i don't think it's because of that sense of urgency uh again you see you have to be i have to be insouciant right. i have to believe that i'm going to live forever who, who was it said if your right hand knows what your left hand or the other way around is that your left hand knows uh and i i think that applies to uh uh, to writing, uh, and a poem, a poem comes in a kind of a blur of confusion and frustration, and uh, its its birth is a is a mystery. Um, 
and uh, it can't, as I said earlier, be the result of of will. Um, it's it it's um. Well, I don't know. As I said, the newer poems come from uh, and go there. But when I write a poem, it's its own excitement. Uh, I'm not thinking, oh, that's one more in the kitty uh, against when I die, uh, or um, I'm writing this because I'm frightened of death. Um, no, I'm writing the poem because I'm in love with the words, and there's a strange feeling. Uh, a poem sort of begins out there, you know, behind your ear. And if you focus, the thing is, the thing of what I don't quite like about the creative writing notion, if, if you, certainly, if I focus too much on a poem, it disappears. You have to sort of let it creep up on you and take you by surprise. And my God, if you're not surprised, nobody else is going to be surprised. <laughs> And so you were saying that you're you're working on this new collection of uh, the slain birds. Um, when when might we expect to be able to see that come out? I haven't thought of that yet. Uh, I I would I would send it off in about a year, I guess, or less than a year, um, and then it'll take a year, um, and then I might get down to write my memoir, in which you must yeah. all look out, you know. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it's scaring me already. Absolutely, the idea that um, I should. The other thing I should just mention is that the ICC is partnering with No Alibis Bookshop in Belfast for this yeah. event. So, if you would like to buy one of Michael's recent books at a discount, maybe even get your hands on a signed copy, please visit the ICC website for for further details. Mm. Um. So I would say you've kind of now reached the status of kind of national treasure in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, when you think back on this um, kind of extraordinary kind of poetic career, do you have a sense of what you would like your legacy to be? I would like a few poems to be read, a few of my poems to last. Uh, that I, I don't think in terms of, of, of legacy. Really, um, I, w- I would like um, there to be to leave behind uh, reverence for form and for shape, the mystery of form. Uh, I would like uh, to leave behind a few fountains, mm-hmm. and, and that, that would that would do me fine. And it would be nice, be nice if my my work was kept in print. Um, but um, and I don't think in terms of uh, I don't really like collected poems you know the the, the volumes uh, but most of them could be cut by about that much uh, it's just uh, just a few I, and I forget what book it was I wrote a one line poem yeah. uh, shorter than a haiku wasn't it yeah yeah I called it a low coup <laughs> Yeah, uh, my lost lamb, lovelier than all the wool. Absolutely. I'm going to ask you to 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 finish our session just with reading maybe a slightly longer poem than that. <laughs> um, one from the uh, Slain Birds, which is yet to be published. So we're getting a bit of a, mm-hmm. a sneak preview. Um, and I, I I wondered if you would read us Solomon's Seal. Yes, it's a lovely flower which I discovered in the back garden, a bit like a lily of the valley, and it quotes from the Song of Songs, Solomon's erotic words. <clears throat> Shaded by the self-seeded hazels in a back corner of our garden, to the right of the flowering current, an unexpected Solomon's seal I want to show you. <clears throat> Does it matter? Why such graceful bells are so cold? Seals of a medieval medieval document? It's May. And Solomon says, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Winter is past. The rain is over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. A solitary cowslip has survived 
under our beach, the first grass cutting. The time of the singing of birds is come. Oh, wonderful. That's such a positive and optimistic note to end on. Um, I think we're all feeling like that solitary flower that's managing to survive the winter, uh, the end of lockdown and the coming of spring. So, so thank you so much, Michael. It's been just a total pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for, you know, brill a brilliant, brilliant talk. Uh, we're really grateful. Uh, well, thank you so much. And it's lovely to be talking with you. We can do this again another time, can't we? <laughs> we could do it just anyway, couldn't we? We don't even yeah. have to record it. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much for your uh, attentiveness and affection. Uh, much appreciated. Affection's always there. It's a, it's a real joy to talk to you, and thank you, Michael. Bye. Okay, love. Bye-bye.